bow our heads for another word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you again for the tremendous blessings you give to us each and every day. And Lord, thank you, God, that you desire to commune with your people as you did with Zacchaeus so many years ago. Jesus, our heart's desire is that your righteousness would be upon us, that you would cover us with your precious blood. And Lord, we pray and ask that the Holy Spirit would be here in a mighty way to invigorate us, to commission us, to charge us with your word. And Father, we pray and ask that in the remaining years before your second coming, Lord, our walk with you would grow ever so deeper. For this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, how many men actually are alone today because of the women's retreat? Raise your hand. Five people. You're not alone. So you guys know tonight is the showing of our movie, Helen, Mr. Fudge. Many people say, what is that movie about? I've had to have uh, very unusual conversations as I'm explaining it to people. I told one individual, I said, it's a movie about hell. It's not really appealing when you think about it. But the truth of the matter is that this is a movie about a man who was who was searching out this issue about what happens to people when they die, especially in regards to the wicked. Are they eternally being punished and being tormented? Or is the Bible saying something else? And it's based upon true events, and I think it's going to be a really exciting thing. You know, I've had opportunity to pass out to a variety of different people, and it's so funny because when you're passing it out to people, they think that the very postcard you're passing out to people is a ticket. And so, you know, I had one individual say, oh, can I have another one of those tickets? And I said, okay. And I handed him another ticket. But uh, a lot of people are interested in this. And because it, it's, it's something that's describing that something that is so fundamental in Christianity that needs to be understood, and that is God's justice and God's mercy. How do we understand that? Um, I think that more people are probably... Uh, I should say, more interested in going to a movie than they would be to going to church. So you don't have to worry so much about rejections. You would be surprised how many people, if you say to them, well, here's a free ticket or here's a free pass to come to this movie, you'd be surprised how many people are actually interested in coming out. Tonight is the first showing. That's at 7 o'clock. And I really want to challenge you, church family, that you would find somebody, perhaps there's somebody on your cell phone who's not a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, and you would call them up and you would say, hey, look, why don't you come to this movie tonight with me? I'd be surprised, you'd be surprised how many people would be like, I'd be all about it. And so this is the time to really um, invite people and let them know, look, come, out, come on out and see what's happening tonight. I really believe that God has been uh, just producing a lot of divine appointments. We've been praying for you. The pastoral staff has been praying for you, church family, that God would open up many opportunities. I've heard stories of, uh, you know, somebody walking by a cemetery and being able to hand it out to somebody. I heard somebody being able to pass it out to their neighbors and to the person at the store, their teacher. And there's so many people who are receptive to this. So this is a time to really invite people and get them to come on out. And that movie is at what time? And what time do you think you should be there? Not 5.30. (laughs) You'll be waiting outside. You might want to be there around 6.30 to make sure you get a good seat. All the other churches know about this as well. So you better believe they're going to be coming on out. Uh, Don't worry. I believe there's going to be plenty of room. God always provides room. And by chance, if there is a problem where we are so packed that no one can come in, I am sure there's going to be wonderful Seventh-day, series Seventh-day Adventists who are going to get up and say, take my seat. Amen? There should be more amens for that. Hey, like, no one's taking my seat. This isn't a church pew that has a little dent in there. This is a, a movie theater. It's for everyone. Amen? Amen. All right, you guys. Why don't we get started with today's sermon. It's called Powerful Secrets in the Book of Genesis, Part 2. Next week is going to end the three-part series on the Book of Genesis. When you read the Sabbath School Quarterly, you find out that it's about, what's the key word? Origins, right? Where we come from. Because where we come from is super important. Where we come from determines where we are going. And it's extremely important. If there's ever a time to understand origins, it is now. And let me go as far as to say this, and I mentioned this in one of the Sabbath schools, that it is becoming troublesome 
in this day and age to say that you take the book of Genesis literally. You will be ridiculed if you say, I believe in a six-day creation. You will be ridiculed if you say, I believe marriage is between a man and a woman. The day has come where anyone who says they accept the book of Genesis is, being, is someone who's just considered ignorant. Folks, right now, right now, we sort of have the shield of Christianity. But the time is coming where Christianity is more and more compromising and Seventh-day Adventists may be the only ones who say, we're going to take a stance on the book of Genesis. I was uh, watching this Pierce Morgan interview and there's nothing more annoying than watching that interview show. And... He was telling, I think it was Rick Warren, he was telling him, he was saying, we need to amend the Bible. We need to change it. Folks, more and more people are going to say to you, do not believe in this book. You will be ridiculed if you say, I believe in the Bible. But if there ever is a time for Seventh-day Adventists to say, I believe in the scriptures, it is now. Can you say amen to that? We are still the people of the book. Amen? And there are many people who love Jesus who are people of the book as well. But God is calling us as a church to stay committed to the scriptures like never before. You know, as we continue to study the book of Genesis, I take a philosophy of science class. And I just hear uh, the repetitious, uh, just sort of denunciations about anyone who claims to be a creationist. You know... Here's the thing to understand about the Bible and about creationism and about science. And this is actually just before we get into the sermon. Because of the flood, a lot of geology has been so rearranged, it is very difficult to get an accurate reading on how old the earth is. And so we can look into all the things, the, the strata, and we can say, the world is this old, the world is this old, this, you know, it's, it's uh, uh, this age. But the truth of the matter is, the strata is so rearranged, it's very difficult to actually locate and say, you know what, there is an age. But we know what the scriptures are teaching. Can you say amen to that? In fact, a lot of people ask the question, they said, well, how are we supposed to show people who are, let's say, scientists, how old the earth is? Here's something that I believe is a general rule. I really believe it's super important for God's people to know science and to be aware of what's out in the world. And there's many different views on what science actually is. But it is a rare thing. I've seen this in my own experience, my limited experience. It is a rare thing for people to accept the Bible because of creationism. In fact, I find more people accept creationism because they accept the Bible. When I'm doing evangelistic series, I'm sure many people have questions about origins. But as they begin to see proof and, and uh, they can trust the scriptures, they then can trust what the Bible says existed at the very beginning that God created the world in six days. Over and over again, I have found this to be true. In fact, when I became a Christian, I had a lot of questions. I was raised in Southern California. I was, uh, went through you know, a college and university. I, just, I learned what evolutionary science was teaching. Now, when I became a Christian, it's not like strong arguments were being presented to me that just really overwhelmed me that I needed to become a creationist. Instead, as I begin to see truth in the scriptures, like in the book of Daniel, in the book of Revelation, and what Jesus was saying over and over again, over and over again, I begin to find the scriptures to be more and more trustworthy. And as I begin to believe the scriptures, all of a sudden, I begin to believe that God did create the world in six days. Do you hear what I'm saying? Because this is extremely important. We really need to present the Bible as the truth. Can you say amen to that? And so we're going to get into the book of Genesis right now. Last week we talked about origins. We talked about the origin of man. How God created man in his own what? Image, right? He brought man into his own category. We also learned about the origin of women, right? And as <laughs> I remember last week I was preaching about the origins of women. And I was talking about how... The purpose of the helpmeet, as the Bible says, you can find about 19 verses that describe that same word being used to describe God's rescuing help and three words to describe military aid. And I forgot as I was saying, and what is the purpose of women? I think it was Jim Warby who said, military aid. That would be, me. That would be you. 
But we also learned about the origins of the Sabbath. Three blessings that God did in the book of Genesis, right? He told the animals to be fruitful and multiply and fill the sky, right? God took something that was empty and filled it. Then we learned about how God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. God told Adam and Eve to fill the earth that was empty. And then in the Sabbath, we learned about how God took this time that was empty, and the Bible says in it, he rested. So God filled the Sabbath with his own presence. So now we understand more about the Sabbath. We learned about the origins of mankind. We learned about the origins of women. We learned about the origins of the Sabbath. We also learned about the origins of Adam's struggle and how he gave up the rib and how basically the same word is also described in the book of Genesis um, showing when Jacob wrestled and how his side was touched as well. And with Adam, when he gave up the rib, it led to a union with Eve. We learned about how Jacob, when he wrestled with God, it led to a reunion with Esau. And then we learned about Jesus. The Greek word actually describes that, that part that's describing his side as rib. That led to a reconciliation with mankind. God and mankind being reconciled. So we learned a lot of different things from last week. I know many people have said, I know you are overloading us with information. Well, here's the thing to understand. I am presenting things to you in a certain way because I want you to go home and to take this and to study it out for yourself. Can you say amen to that? What takes place Sabbath morning can never fill you for the entire week. It is up to your personal walk with God. Can you say amen to that? So now we're going to get again into the book of Genesis. Take your Bible. We're going to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. And so I really advise you to take notes or to get the audio recording. You can go online. Because we're going to be going 90 miles an hour. Genesis chapter 4. We are looking at powerful secrets in the book of Genesis. We are looking at Genesis chapter what? Chapter 4. This is not the Bible I brought up. Okay, here it is. Genesis chapter 4. And from Genesis chapter 4, we learned, or Genesis chapter 3, we learned how Adam and Eve, because of their sin, the Bible says that there was going to be consequences, right? We also learned about the very first promise that God gave Adam and Eve, right? That through Eve would come the life giver. Hence, she was named Eve after the curse, which means mother of life. Adam believed that life and redemption would come through Eve. Now, I want you to see what takes place in Genesis chapter 4, starting with verse 1. Are we all there? Amen. Now, Adam, what's that next word? Knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore who? Cain, it's... And and I want you to see what happens next. And said, now watch what Eve says next. And I do not want you to forget what she says next because we're going to go back to it. And said, I have a, I have what? Acquired a man from the Lord. Does anybody else have a different translation? Can you, I can't hear anything? Brought forth. Anybody else? I got a man child. Okay, anybody else? Who said something? Have gotten, right? Now the key word that's here, the key verb is acquired. Do not forget what Eve says here because we're going to go back to this. Eve says, after the birth of Cain, I have acquired a man from the Lord. I was looking at the Hebrew, and there was different Hebrew scholars that were simply saying, what Eve was actually saying, she was saying, I have been given or I have purchased a man from the Lord. Eve believed that this first child was going to be the fulfillment of the promise. I was reading Patriarchs and Prophets. Ellen White says the exact same thing. That Eve, Adam and Eve, believed that this first child would be that promised seed that would come and get them back in the garden. But something takes place here. Let's find out what happens. And do not forget what Eve says when Cain is born. I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time, his brother who? Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of what? Sheep. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now they were all vegetarians still at that time. God did not introduce or permit God's people, the righteous, to have a meat diet yet. So we understand that what Abel was actually doing, he was not the meat market. He was not the meat market. But it was Cain who was called to be the breadwinner. He was the one that was supposed to be raising up the crops and to get food on the table. But Abel was given a very special purpose. He was not the breadwinner. His job was to take care of the sheep that would be used in worship and sacrifice of God. 
Now, here's a key point. I don't want you to miss this key point. And that is, generally throughout Scripture, the firstborn was always believed to have to be the one who would possess the inheritance, the firstborn would have usually the greatest family. He would essentially be the strongest, most dominant individual within that clan. So there was a lot that was resting upon Cain. A lot that was being told to him. You can imagine Adam and Eve said, you know, we're so excited about you. You're going to be the one that's going to destroy the serpent. There was a lot resting upon this man. The Bible says that he was the tiller of the ground. And Abel, his younger brother, actually his name means nothing or breath. Cain's name meant acquired. Cain was the special one. He was the one that was considered special. But Abel, he was the second born. He would be the individual that would be the assistant. And so hence he was given the important task of being the keeper of the sheep. But it was Cain where the focus was actually upon. Now watch what happens over the process of time. Let's keep going. Verse 3. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the what? Fruit of the ground to the Lord, and also of the firstborn. Abel brought, also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. Now pay attention to what Cain is bringing. Cain is bringing what type of offering? What type of offering did he bring? First fruits, right? He took the best of his crops and he says, you know what, I'm going to offer this to the Lord. But what did Abel sacrifice? The sheep. He sacrificed the sheep and their fat, or as it says in Hebrew, the best part. Abel was following what God had set up. If you read the book of Genesis chapter 3, God essentially set up the worship service where Adam and Eve were supposed to bring sacrifices to mankind. In fact, the word that's used to describe when God puts coats of skins on them, that's the same word used to describe what priests were given when they were given their priestly garments. Adam and Eve were set up essentially as the priests. And so now this was passing through to Cain and Abel. But Cain decides something one day. He decides that he is not going to bring the sacrifice that God had actually recommended. Now, I'm going to ask a question to you. And if you have con- contacted me in the past or we've talked just recently last week, you'll know the answer, so you're not allowed to say anything. Was Cain's sacrifice essentially wrong? Was it essentially wrong? Him bringing the first fruits to God, was there something wrong with the first fruits? What did Abel bring? Abel brought the lamb. Abel brought the lamb. He brought the blood. But did Cain, did Cain bring the best of the ground? You better believe he did. But was Cain's sacrifice wrong, yes or no? When you read the book of Deuteronomy, God actually commanded the Israelites over and over again to bring first fruits. Cain's sacrifice was not essentially wrong, it was lacking. When you read the book of Deuteronomy, the first fruit sacrifices were a thanksgiving offering. They were designed simply to give God thanks. In fact, when you read the book of Hebrews, God talks about Abel and says he offered a more excellent sacrifice. In other words, Abel did not bring, he probably brought first fruits as well, but he brought something in addition to the first fruits. He brought the lamb. So what Cain presented was not essentially wrong. It was intentionally incomplete. Now this is extremely important for us to understand. Because you you have two worshipers of God. One is bringing the prescribed method of worship. And somebody else is bringing an incomplete worship. The reason why this is extremely important to us, because as we get closer and closer to the end of time, we're going to find that the world is going to be pushed into two camps, those who are bringing correct worship to God and those who are bringing not an incorrect but an incomplete worship to God. This is extremely important because I used to read the book of Genesis and I would always think to myself, oh yeah, Cain and Abel. Cain just brought what he wanted to bring and Abel just brought what God wanted him to bring. Cain actually brought part of what God wanted him to bring, but he didn't bring the most important part, which was the lamb. So essentially what Cain presented to God was simply a thanksgiving offering. You're like, well, what's wrong with that? Watch what Ellen White says right here. Christ, our mediator, and the Holy Spirit are constantly interceding in man's behalf. Can you say amen to that? But the Spirit pleads not for us, as does Christ, who presents his, what's that next word? Blood shed from the foundation of the world. The religious services. Now, are you in a religious service, yes or no? Yes or no? Yeah. Duh. We're in Sabbath. We're here at church service, right? 
It's a religious service. Okay? The prayers. Have you prayed today? You better believe The praise. Did you praise God today? Yes or no? You better believe it. The penitent confession of sin. Did you have a time of confession today? Amen? Now watch this. Of sin, ascend from true... Excuse me. Presents his blood shed from the foundation of the world, the religious services, the prayers, the praise, the penitent confession of sin, ascend from true believers as incense to the heavenly sanctuary. But passing through the corrupt channels of humanity, they are so defiled that unless purified from by blood, they can never be of value with God. In other words, if you're going up here and you're praising God or you're praying to God and the blood of Jesus is not part of your offering, it's useless. In fact, where did Cain get the first fruits? From the ground that was cursed. All the works outside the blood of Jesus is incomplete. It's tainted with self. So everything I present to God needs to have the righteousness of Christ or it's completely worthless to God. They ascend not in spotless purity and unless the intercessor who is at God's right hand presents and purifies all by his righteousness, it is not acceptable to God. So what did Cain present? He presented praise and thanksgiving without the blood of the Lamb. Now let me ask you a question, church family. Are your offerings to God, your praises, your religious services, are they lacking the most important thing, the blood of Jesus? All the incense from the earthly tabernacles must be moist with the cleansing drops of the blood of Christ. He holds before the Father the censer of his own merits, in which there is no taint of earthly corruption. I like what Martin Luther says. He talks about the righteous robes of Christ, and he says, it is foreign. The righteousness of Christ is foreign. It's not man-made. Because if it was man-made, it would be tainted with man and self. Let's keep going. He gathers into this censer the prayers, the praise, and the confessions of his people. With these, he puts his own spotless righteousness. Then perfumed with the merits of Christ's propitiation, the incense comes before God holy and entirely acceptable. And I love what Ellen White says as she's adding it. And she says a prayer. Oh, that all may see that everything in obedience, in penitence, in praise, in thanksgiving must be placed upon the glowing fire of the righteousness of Christ. The fragrance of this righteousness ascends like a cloud around the mercy seat. Can you say amen to that? Folks, without Christ being the center and the focus of your worship, you're worshiping just as the world does. You're giving an incomplete sacrifice. And let me just say something. It is entirely conceivable to say that God's people, whether the Seventh-day Adventist or not, keep the Sabbath, may know all the right things, may come to church every Sabbath, may give tithe, and yet still be lacking the blood of Jesus. Now let me ask you a question. Is God's righteousness upon you today? This morning, did you wake up? And the very first thing you do when you're coming to God with your thanksgiving and your praise, did you come to the cross to receive the blood? Because if you didn't go to the blood, if you didn't go to the cross, your prayers don't have his righteousness. It's your righteousness that you're presenting. Folks, do you know what the Sabbath represents? The Sabbath represents we are a people who believed we have been saved by the blood of Jesus. Can you say amen to that? You read what Paul says in Hebrews chapter 4. The Sabbath actually, it actually is supposed to exemplify God's people as being the individuals who believe in righteousness by faith. We rest not to be saved, but because salvation has been given to us. Can you say amen to that? I remember one day I was knocking on a door. And this guy says to, I knocked on the door, he opens up, and he says, what church are you from? Like, that's the first thing that comes out of his mouth. And I said, well, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. And then he closes the door and says, no thanks, I don't believe in works. Here's the thing, folks. Here's the thing to understand about that. That was annoying, let me just tell you that. I wasn't able to say anything to him. We keep the Sabbath because we believe in the righteousness and the rest that comes from God. Amen. That's what being a Seventh-day Adventist is all about. The Sabbath is supposed to typify the rest we find in Jesus. It is supposed to set us apart as people who are bringing the righteousness of Christ. That is what the Sabbath represents. And so what Cain was presenting, he was presenting all the right things. He was doing all the right things, but he was failing and he was lacking the most essential part, which was the blood of the Lamb. Now we're going to understand a little bit more about Cain. Let's keep going. I want you to see one other thing 
about Cain. Go to verse 4. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their what? Fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. Now watch verse 5. But he did not, what's that next word? Respect Cain and his offering. Now folks, let me ask you a question. What did God reject? Did he reject the offering? Yes or no? But he also rejected one more thing. Cain. Did you guys see that? He had no respect. The word respect simply means gaze. Fire did not come upon the altar. In other words, God was not just simply saying, the sacrifice is unacceptable, but he was also saying to Cain, Cain, your attitude is unacceptable. Oh my goodness. All of a sudden it begins to dawn on us. It's not just how you worship. It's the motive behind your worship. That counts to God. Are you telling me we have to be happy Christians? You better believe I'm telling you you have to be happy Christians. I've seen some people, when they're worshiping God, they're just thinking, oh, I just really hate that guy that's up there. But I'm going to praise God anyways. Over and over again, our worship is being tainted by our bad attitudes. Cain's attitude was bad. And that's why it wasn't just the offering that was bad. It was Cain's own heart. Folks, when we're presenting anything to God, not only do we need the blood of Jesus, but we need to pray that our hearts and minds are congruent with that what we are giving to God. Can you say amen to that? That's why the Bible says, God loves a joyful what? Giver. In other words, you know what matters more to God and what has more worth? God holds the worth of someone who presents $20 to him with joy than someone who presents a million dollars to him with bitterness in his heart. In other words, the motives and intentions add value to the very thing that is being offered, and that is what God values. And that's why the Bible says this is the will of God, that we keep his commandments, and that his commandments are not grievous. God wants your heart involved in your worship. Can you say amen to that? And that when you read the scriptures and you're spending time with God, it's not something you do grudgingly or hesitantly, but you're saying, Lord, I want to be joyful when I'm reading the scriptures. Can you say amen to that? You read what 1 Corinthians chapter 13 talks about. And it's saying, we can do all the right things. We can offer our food to the poor. We can give to God. We can know Bible prophecy. We can preach. But if we're lacking love, it's useless to God. Can you say amen to that? So that means when I'm serving others in some capacity, there should be joy in my heart. Amen? In other words, people shouldn't be seeing bitterness and anger and frustration from servants of God. Can you say amen to that? As we're serving others, the greatest joy should be in our heart. Amen? Now we're going to learn something very interesting. Let's keep going. We're trying to get to the meat of our study. Now watch what happens in verse 8. Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and what? Killed him or slew him in the King James, right? Cain got angry. He murders his brother Abel. This is the very first murder in all of scriptures. Let's keep going. Verse 9, then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your what? Brother. God attaches Cain's responsibility, and he says, where is Abel your brother? Watch what he says next. He said, I do not what? Now let me ask you a question. Did Cain know where Abel was? And where was Abel? He was probably hidden off somewhere, right? Dead. He's gone. And so when God confronts Abel or Cain, what he's giving Cain to do, uh, an opportunity, is an opportunity of repentance confession. But you know what Cain does? He denies it. You know, when I was studying this out, all of a sudden I was really impressed with something. You want to know what Laodicea's problem was? Remember what God says to them? It's not that they have problems. Problems are always part of humanity. You know what Laodicea's problem is? They pretend like they don't have problems. In fact, when you read the language of what God says to Cain, sin lies at the door. When you read the chapter about Laodicea, who's at the door trying to find repentance? God is knocking at the door. Laodicea's problem is thinking, we're okay. And so when God confronted Cain with an opportunity to change, Cain, I don't know. And he's walking off and God says, 
your brother's blood cries out to me. We know the rest of the story. We know about Cain, how he fled off into the wilderness, or he fled off into the land of Nod. The word Nod means wandering. He left the presence of God, went into the land of Nod, which means, in other words, outside the presence of God, there's only aimless wandering. And so there he left, took his wife. In fact, when you read what Cain says when God confronts him, it seems to be very apparent that a society was already developing at that time. Cain was worried if people actually found him, he would be killed. And so he flees, and the Bible says he builds a city. But from this one rebel, all of a sudden, this list of descendants begin to come out. You begin to find out individuals by the name of Lamech. You find about other individuals. In fact, when you read, this is something so interesting. I was doing a word study on the names of the people who come from Cain. You know what their names mean? It's so interesting. Their names mean smitten of God. Their names mean hurt or wounded. From Cain came this generation of people who stayed at a distance from God. And over and over again, this society, this society of Cain began to develop. And the Bible describes the seventh individual who came from Cain. His name was Lamech. He was a polygamist, but he was not just a polygamist. He was a murderer. And his, Cain's descendants began to rapidly multiply, and they were full of murder, and they were abandoned sinners who hated things about God. And over and over again, this society developed. But the apex of Cain's crime was seen in the seventh child, Lamech, who actually quotes from Cain, and he actually says this. Let's read it. Verse 32. Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, hear, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. Now watch what he says. If Cain be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. In fact, when you read the Hebrew, you find out what this actually was. If you notice, there's some spacing there. This was actually Hebrew music. So what is Lamech doing? He's singing about his sins. He's become a law to himself. This is the apex of Cain's descendants. And he's proud of what he does. And he says, if anybody touches me, they're going to die too. This is what happened as part of Cain's rejection of God. His children fell away. And the last one that's mentioned there, Lamech, was one of the worst ones that the Bible lists. Now, this is where we actually transition because I want you to see something that's very interesting. Go to verse 25. Verse 25. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. What was the name of the son? Do you know when Seth was born? Go to chapter 5. I want you to see verse 3. I want you to see when Seth was born because it's extremely important. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son when? In his own likeness, after his image, and named him what? So how old was Adam when Seth was born? You know why that's so important? Because the time between Cain... Cain killing Abel. And between the time of Seth being born, there was a lot of years. In other words, between that time, Adam and Eve had no sons. Instead, you know what they saw? Cain's descendants getting worse and worse and worse, and yet they had no son. And they not having a son means what? They're not ever getting back at that garden. So here they are. They become witnesses of how evil... Cain's descendants became. Ellen White even says that Adam, Adam was trying to witness to some of them and they rejected him. So here Adam, he is just, he's getting older and older with Eve and they're not having a son, but over and over again they begin to hear about Cain and his descendants and how murderous and how evil they become over and over again. They're growing rapidly, yet in Adam's society, they're still not having a son. The Bible says 130 years passed. Some time passed between that, and here they are. They're not giving the son, which means they have no promise, which you can imagine means it's hard having a lot of hope at that time. But worse and worse became the descendants of Cain, and they solved the fruits of transgression. And you can imagine Adam just bowed down with this guilt and sorrow as he sees his grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren becoming worse and worse and worse. Now, I want you to see what happens when Seth is actually born. Go to chapter 4 one more time, and I want you to take a good look at verse 25. It's very important. Then Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son. And do you remember that same phrase? We found it in Genesis, the very beginning of Genesis chapter 4. Do you remember what Eve says when Cain is born? 
I have what? Acquired or purchased or redeemed a child. Now watch what happens years later after she has learned a lot of lessons of repentance, sorrow, and patience. Then Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God, now watch what she says, for God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. Now I want you to pay attention to the language. It's extremely important. Eve, when Cain is born, she says, God has given me this child and he is going to be the redemption. He fell into sin. Years later, years later, all of a sudden, Seth is finally born. A boy is born. And instead of Eve saying, The Lord has given me this. She says, God has appointed me another seed. In fact, you know what's so so interesting about that? I was looking at Hebrew scholarship on that. Eve's wording or tone of voice from her original mention found in the very beginning of chapter 4 seems to have a bit of pride as what one Hebrew scholar says. But the second time she speaks when another son is born, there's humility in it. Eve was resting hopes upon Cain, and when he fell away, her hope was damaged. But this time, instead of saying, I have acquired or redeemed a son who will come through me, she says, the Lord. And she uses the key word there, appointed, which is so important because it usually describes, if you read the Old Testament, that word is usually used in description of God's divine timing. The Lord has appointed salvation. You'll find that phrase over and over again. So what is Eve recognizing about redemption? She is recognizing it's God's timing. It's God's timing that matters, not mine, because many times we're just like, okay, God, it's time for you to do what you need to do on my time and my skill. And God says, you don't want it your way. And we're saying, no, Lord, it's my way. And then we see the results of having it our way. But God says, wait Let me appoint the time. And when you read about what happens when God sets up the time scale and Seth is finally born, watch what the Bible says because of Seth took place. Chapter 4, verse 26. And as for Seth, to him a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Now watch what the Bible says. Then men begin to what? Call upon the name of the Lord. You know what began to happen within Adam's little society that was dwindling? The church began to finally grow. God's people began to grow. Why? Because of the faithfulness of Seth. So finally now, there was two groups of people that were growing rapidly now. It was no longer just Cain's descendants. But now, over here, you have Seth who was now leading a group of men and women to worship God. In fact, when you look at that phrase, to call upon the Lord, I was looking at it in Hebrew, and in fact, the Andrews Bible Study Commentary bears this out, that this was usually described uh, worship. And they were calling upon God for salvation. So what does it mean when men begin to call upon the name of the Lord? It means that men begin to worship God again. This is what was taking place as Seth was finally born after years of pain and sorrow. God's timing is perfect. Amen? I love what Ellen White says. I was reading it today. She says this. Like the, appoint, like the stars that are appointed in their place, God's purposes know no haste. Or delay. Amen? God's always on time. Amen? He may stretch us, and he may say, hold on just a little bit longer. We're just like, God, I'm giving up right here. And God says, just a little bit longer. And when we get to that place, we realize it was all worth it. And we praise God for every way that he led. Can you say amen to that? But I want you to see what happens next. From these Sethites begin to grow godly men, righteous men. And from the descendants of Cain, wickedness, more and more wickedness. But the Bible describes the seventh from Cain being Lamech, who was the worst. Now I want you to see who was the seventh from Adam. His name was Enoch. Now let's see what happens next. Take your Bible and let's go to Genesis chapter 5, I want you to take a good look at verse 21. We saw the seventh from Cain, who became the epitome or the apex of sin and transgression. And now we're going to see Adam, the seventh from Adam, the descendants of Seth. I want you to see something remarkable about this man named Enoch. Go to verse 21. Enoch lived 65 years, and he begot who? Methuselah. Somebody said to me earlier, I don't have a middle name. I said, make your middle name Methuselah. They laughed at that. Let's keep going. I think that's a beautiful name. You're like, why don't you name your kid that? All right. 
I don't have any kids yet. Okay. Verse 21. Enoch lived 65 years and begot who? Methuselah. Now watch what happens in verse 22. After he begot who? Methuselah. Enoch. What's that next word? Walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 300 and what? 65 years. All the days in a year. And Enoch walked with God and he was what? Not for God took him. Now I talked about this in the past. I preached a sermon on this, but I want to come back to some of these same points because they're powerful here. We saw the seventh from Cain get worse and worse and he became the epitome of sin. And now we are looking at the seventh from Adam. The seventh from Adam. The Bible describes all the descendants of Sethites being righteous men, being good men. But when it was describing Enoch's connection with God, it uses completely different words. Enoch's connection with God was far different than what all these other righteous men had. The Bible says he walked with God. By the way, do you know where Enoch gained a lot of his knowledge and wisdom of God? From the lips of Adam. Adam was still alive. From the lips of Adam, he learned the dark story of the what? The fall and the cheering one of God's grace has seen in the promise. And he relied upon the Redeemer to come. But after the birth of his first son, Enoch reached a higher experience. Can you say amen to that? He was drawn into a closer relationship with God. He realized more fully his own obligations and his responsibility as a son of God. Do you know what led to Enoch's walk going from something that was mediocre to something that was considered powerful? He gained a new revelation of God. If we are wanting a deeper connection with God, the very first thing we need to pray for and ask for is a new revelation of God. You know, I appreciate Tanisha and Robert letting me hold their son. I wasn't going to kidnap him. But as I was looking at this child, I was looking at this very innocent, helpless child. And it was just completely reliant upon my arms to hold him up. And as Enoch was holding this child, it began to dawn on him that this is how God looks at us. Helpless, yet he holds us in his arms. Enoch's view and picture of God was changed dramatically through that experience. Folks, if we are wanting a deeper connection with God, we need to pray first for a new revelation of God. Can you say amen to that? Now watch what happens next. As he saw the child's love for its father, its simple trust and its protection, as he felt the deep yearning tenderness of his own heart for that firstborn son, he learned a precious lesson of the wonderful love of God to men in the gift of his son and the confidence with which the children of God may repose or rest in their heavenly father. The infinite, unfathomable love of God through Christ became the subject of his meditations day and night. And with all the fervor of the soul, he sought to reveal that love to the people among whom he dwelt. Enoch was changed by the birth of his son because he gained a new picture of God. Now I want you to pay attention to something else. I want you to see the time period in which Enoch lived. Go to chapter 6 verse 1. This was the time period. We learned, number one, Enoch gained a new picture of God. But I want you to see what the Bible says in Revelation, or excuse me, Genesis 6, verse 1. And it came to pass when, the men, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth that daughters were born to them. And the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. You know what began to happen at that time? You had God's people, the sons of God, who were hot, who began to mix with the world, who were cold. And what happens when you mix with hot with cold lukewarm you know what began to happen at the time of Enoch this was happening during the time of Enoch the church began to lose its identity the sons of God began to compromise sure there was a faithful lineage but the Bible was teaching over and over again people became mixed and at this time Enoch's walk went even closer and deeper to God in fact Ellen White talks about the verse used in Mount thoughts from the Mount of Blessing where it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? Seeing God, and she's using, she's using it to describe Enoch. The word pure in heart, the word pure means unmixed. In other words, Enoch may, remained unmixed in a mixed world. Enoch sought for purity when the whole world around him, when the people around him, even the closest ones were compromising. Folks, if you look at where Enoch is and where we are at, we are living in the exact same time period. 
Enoch was just a little bit way off the end of the world at that time. And we are living in that same spot when the world is creeping in more and more and compromising more and more. And God is calling his people to get into a deeper, closer walk and to seek after that purity, that pure heart, folks. And men, for the five of you that are here without your wives, but for all men, the world is blasting us with evil images. We are being surrounded by this stuff. As soon as we walk outside of this church, it's in our face. If there's ever a time for godly men to stand up, it is now. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but it does mean you are seeking after purity like never before. God is calling his people to be like Enoch, to seek after this purity, this holiness in their heart. And that's why the Bible can say this about Enoch, that he walked with God and was not. And he was pure in heart, and that's why he was able to see God. So number one, we understood Enoch gained a new revelation of God. Number two, we discovered that Enoch sought after purity. But number three, the Bible describes his walk, his connection with God as a walk. You know what that means? Enoch's connection with God was seen as active, dynamic. Have you ever seen people who just can't sit still when, they're, when, they're, uh, when you're in church? That's like me. When somebody else is preaching, I get up. Don't, don't model my experience, okay? But Enoch's experience was seen as dynamic. It was seen energetic. It was always in movement. It was constantly going from one place to another. In fact, when you read the book of Genesis, where is the first walk mentioned? In the garden. And who's walking in the garden? Adam and God. God's walking to Adam. But you know what happens? Sin interrupts that. But what you see with Enoch is that that interruption is now gone. Enoch's connection with God was beautiful communion, uninterrupted by anything in this world. Folks, we need to be praying every day for a deeper walk and communion and connection with Jesus. Can you say amen to that? Ellen White describes Enoch how he would just, he'd go out and do the work of God, then he would go home and he would commune with God. But I also want you to pay attention to something else. The Bible describes he named his son what? Methuselah, which means what in standard Hebrew text? You're like, I don't know. (laughs) It means when he dies, it will come. Methuselah died in the year of flood. In other words, Methuselah was a prophecy. He himself was a prophecy. And when he died, if you look in the scriptures, it was the year of the flood. Noah would have said, it's coming. He was the warning. He himself was the warning. Now, this is extremely important. Because of Enoch's connection with God, his child played a role in end-time events. You hear what I just said? Because of Enoch's connection with God, his child played a role with the final events at that time. Much of your children's walk with God is based upon your walk with God. Can you say amen to that? I know many of us may have kids right now who've walked away from the Lord, but guess what? Now is a good time to start walking with God, amen? To be connected with God. If you want any hope for your children, you better start walking with him now. Can you say amen to that? If you want your kids to walk with God, it needs to start first with you. There needs to be a deeper walk with God. And Adam, excuse me, Enoch shaped his life. The Bible says he walked with God. He knew what God was wanting in his life. And he said, you know what? I'm going to name my son Methuselah. He's going to play a special role. And sure enough, Methuselah played a role at the very end. His life was a warning. Methuselah was somebody who helped build the ark, but he died in the year of the flood, so he never got to even be on that ark, but he helped build up the church. Enoch's son helped build up the church. They helped save them at the end. Because of Enoch's faithfulness. Enoch's faithfulness. We learned Enoch had a new picture of God. We learned Enoch sought after purity. We learned that Enoch directed his family for these special times. Can you say amen to that? And what I think is the most amazing part about this whole thing is that when you read the scriptures, you don't want to miss this part. Adam was still living at this time. Adam actually lived 100 years after the time that Enoch went to heaven. You know why that's so beautiful? Because Adam was the first person to be given a death sentence. And when Enoch was translated, Enoch was the first person to not see death. In other words, Enoch's life was hope for Adam that mankind can still enter into heaven. Can you say amen to that? 
the life of Enoch was strategically placed. And Adam, as Adam's coming down to the very end of his life, 900 years plus, and just seeing death and woe, and wondering, Lord, is there ever going to be hope? One of his great, 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 great children was so connected with God that the death sentence given to Adam and to all his children was expunged. Can you say amen to that? What an example through the life of Enoch, the seventh from Adam. Folks, God wants us in these times, in these times, to be faithful like Enoch. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith Enoch was taken away, so he did not see death. The Bible says he was not found because God had taken him. And before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Do you want to please God? Well, this is how. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Enoch believed that he could come to God. Enoch believed that God was good. Enoch believed that God loved him as a son. Enoch pleased God. And where Enoch was, you can be. And where Enoch now is, by faith, you can have a heavenly experience. God is calling his people to be like Enoch's in these last days. Can you say amen to that? To pray for that new picture of God. To seek after purity of heart. To really plead for God that he would change our hearts, that we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. God wants us to shape our families for these times. The world's not going to be going on forever, amen? And I hope your primary purpose in your kids' development is their connection with Jesus. Everything else is subservient. God wants his people to stand like Enoch did in his time. Do you want a closer walk with Jesus? Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Lord, I'm sure there's every person here wants something closer with you, Jesus. But Lord, you know the things that we need to understand. And that is, number one, we can't save ourselves, God. We just can't. And number two, we can't change our hearts, Lord. But Lord, we acknowledge that you can. And you can save us. We want to be like Enoch, Lord, that our walk with you would be so close that heaven would want us there. Jesus, just pray for every person here that you would bless them and they would know that they are loved by the Father in heaven. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.